Right, friends, well, please turn with me this evening to Psalm 16 that we read a little earlier. Now, one of the great common misunderstandings about the Christian faith, and the gospel message in particular, is that it's all to do with preparation for the world to come. It's all about heaven and eternity, but has got very little practical stuff to say about day-to-day life. And you hear the crass version of this kind of criticism when people say, I know Christian people, but they know better than anybody else. I'm sure you've come across that kind of criticism, as if to say that the gospel doesn't make a difference in day-to-day life. Now, we know that's not true. Thank God that's not true. Christians are not perfect, but Christians are changed. And we praise God for that. But there's a more subtle version of that kind of uh, problem, which is sometimes affects us as Christians ourselves. And it's this sort of thing, you know. We recognize that the gospel should change us and should make us different and should help us day by day in our lives. But in the reality of our day by day lives, when things are hard and things are complicated, we fear that we're often not different and we're not the people that we should be and in fact we can even come to the point where we doubt the reality of the gospel and of the power of God to really change us and to really help us it might be true of some great faithful Christians but for me in my little life I often feel defeated and I feel as if I'm not really making any progress at all. We shouldn't think like that, but there can be a temptation to fall into that kind of trap. Now, the reality is, and I trust that we'd all agree on this, that what there really needs to be as a result of the influence of the gospel in our lives, those of us who are Christians who've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, is there should be a consistency in life and a reality in experience, and a submission to the will of God in times of trouble. The gospel makes a difference in the way we live day by day. And the real reason for that is that the gospel doesn't only bring us to heaven, thank God it does that, but the gospel in the here and now brings us to God. I caught it this morning, this verse from 1 Peter 3, but it bears repeating. Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, that he might bring us to God. When a man or woman comes to know God, and God is a living reality in their lives day by day, then things do change. So the question for us tonight is simply this. Have our lives been transformed so that God, the living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a living reality to us? Do we know him? And is he at work in our lives so that by his grace we are different in the face of temptation? We are different in the face of trouble. We are different in the face of joy. 
We are different in the face of suffering, and we are different in the face of death. That's the important thing, that the gospel, if it's true and it's taken a root in our hearts, it makes a difference in our lives. Right then, a world without God, you see, for so many people, the gospel doesn't make a difference day by day because they don't know, they don't believe the gospel. And as a result, they've never come to know God. It's a world without God. In Ephesians 2 and verse 12, the apostle Paul describes men and women as without God and without hope in the world. And the idea there is that somehow God is distant from people. People are distant from God. God doesn't figure in their decision-making. He doesn't figure in their life choices. God's promises don't give them hope. They don't pray and they don't worship because in their world, there's no God. Now, we know that the reason this came about is because of what happened with the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. They were created to know God. God was an integral part of their lives. They walked with him in the garden. They knew his will. They delighted in his will. They experienced his blessing. But in rebellion, they turned away from the true and living God and disastrous things happened. The nearness of God was replaced by distance. Fellowship with God was replaced by suspicion, distrust, and fear. God's blessing was replaced by God's curse. Their priorities changed from God's will and God's glory in my life to self and my own desires. Certainty was replaced by doubt and hope was replaced by despair. To be without God in the world. But when we come to Psalm 16, we find a very different situation. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. We find David writing this psalm in a difficult situation, a time of trouble. But in the psalm, David isn't the man who's distant from God. He's a man who trusts in God, verse 1. He's a man who finds all his good in God, verse 2. He's a man who's satisfied with the way God has dealt with him in his life, verse 6. He's a man who knows the guidance of God, verse 7. He's a man who has confidence that God will preserve him through death, verses 9 and 10. And he's a man who has confidence that God will bring him to everlasting life and joy, verse 11. How has that come about? How is it that rather than being a man who's without God in the world, he's come to be a man who knows God and for whom God is a living reality? That's what I want us to think about. Now, Psalm 16 works on three different levels. Okay? Firstly, it speaks about David. It's a psalm of David. God was to David a living reality in his life, day by day. And that living reality kept David even when he was in danger for his life. The second level and the main level is that Psalm 16 speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the psalm is quoted twice in the New Testament in reference to Christ in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 13. And what you find 
is that God was to the Lord Jesus Christ a living reality. And he kept him, not just in the face of death, but he kept him through death. He didn't suffer him to see corruption. But the third level, it speaks about the believer, the Christian. All believers and all Christians. Because David was a great saint, of course. The Lord Jesus Christ was a sinless son of God, of course. But all true Christians can learn from their experience because all true Christians have been brought to know God. That's the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's brought us back to God in such a way that fellowship and relationship with him has been restored. See, all through the Bible, the great storyline is this, that men and women who are far away can be brought back to God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, as I've just mentioned, what did the Lord do? He appointed for them a way whereby they could be brought back. And that happens by means of sacrifice. You remember, even in the garden, that the Lord killed animals and clothed them with the skins so that their shame might be covered. You get a picture of it even there. And you find that that reality, that the barrier of sin which separates be between men and God being removed so that men and women can be brought back to God, that's the great center of the storyline of the Bible. I was reading a book recently on um, the doctrine of the book of Leviticus, a fascinating book, and one of the things it says is, the first five books of the Bible, Pent the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the middle book is Leviticus. The middle of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement, chapter 16. What happens on the Day of Atonement? The high priest enters God's presence through the blood of sacrifice. Because of the blood of sacrifice, man can come back to God. That's the center of the book of Leviticus. It's the center of the Pentateuch. It's the center of the Bible. Because it points to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover, who was sacrificed for us. You remember in the Gospels, when the Lord Jesus Christ died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God stepped in and he opened the way into his presence because of the blood of sacrifice so that all who are covered by the blood of Christ can come back to God. It's a great thing. Now, what it means is that salvation is more than forgiveness. Forgiveness is wonderful, but salvation is more than forgiveness because God brings us into a new and living relationship with himself. And what that means is men and women have a new heart for God when they're saved. It's a heart of love. We love him because he first loved us. How do we experience his love? Well, in many ways, but fundamentally in this. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. When we experience that love, saving love, cleansing love, restoring love, we find in our own hearts there's an echo and a response of love for him. A new heart of love. It's a new heart of obedience. If we love him, we keep his commandments. Isn't that interesting? Because you would, wouldn't you? If this is the will of the Saviour, the one who's loved you and given himself for you, our natural response 
as with Saul when he's converted, is to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? His commandments are not grievous. This is the path by which we serve and show our love for him. It's a heart of obedience and it's a heart for worship. Because after all, he's our God. And we worship him, not just for his greatness and his glory and his majesty, but we worship him for the way those great attributes reach us. For his love and his mercy and his grace. The Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and who gave himself for me. When you boil it all down, you see, when a man or woman is saved, it means they have a new awareness of God in their lives. Verse 8 is the centre of our thought for the rest of our time together. It's all boiled down for us there. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. That's the secret of consistent Christian living and real Christian experience. That's the centre of submission to the will of God in the face of troubles and difficulties. It's because of this new awareness of God that comes into our lives because through Jesus Christ we've been reconciled to him. So in the verse we've got three things. The first thing is this, a God-aware life. I have set the Lord always before me. What the psalmist is getting at there is this really, everything in our lives must be seen in its true relation to God. Christian people have a new perspective and a new commitment. It isn't just the stuff in my life that I see anymore. It isn't just that stuff that I live for and that stuff that I wrestle with. No, no, I've set the Lord before my eyes. I see things in their relation to him. That's how I assess uh, temptation and trial. That's how I assess truth and error. How do I see it in relation to him? What does he say? That's how commitment comes about. I've set the Lord before my eyes and the desire is that I follow him and that I serve him. Think about it. The psalm speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was aware of God in all things. Some of the things he said in the Gospels. It's my Father who causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and the evil and the good. It's my Father who feeds the birds of the air. It's my Father who clothes the lilies of the field. We believe in second causes, of course. But the point is, the Lord Jesus Christ was aware of his Father even in the little things of day-to-day -day life and in the work of nature because God was in it and he saw God in it. That's important. The Lord is before his eyes. These things aren't chance and random. They are demonstrations of the sovereignty and the goodness of God. In duty, the Lord didn't just live for himself. He came to do the will of the Father. He knew that the eye of his Father was always upon him. And in all his duty and all his obedience to the Father, it was never forced and it was never constrained against his will. But it always flowed from a free and willing spirit. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Why? Because he set the Lord before his eyes. That's his perspective. That's his commitment. In time of trouble, 
The Lord Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But in all those sorrows and troubles, he recognised that these things came from the hand of his Father. And because of that, he found a settledness of spirit and a delight, a greater delight in doing his Father's will than in having his difficulties removed. Think of the situation in John chapter 4, where you have the woman by the well, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and the disciples go off into town to get something to eat, and they come back to the Savior, and they urge him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So they say, has anybody brought him something to eat? And the Lord says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, that's his delight. That's his commitment. That's his perspective. Things have changed. Even in trouble, the fact that the Lord is before his eyes changes everything. And in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think you don't see this any way more clearly than you do in Gethsemane. Where the Lord Jesus Christ is able to say, in the face of the cross and the cup of suffering which the Lord has put into his hands, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Why your will? Because he set the Lord constantly before his eyes. Even in fellowship, it's true, isn't it? We see the way in the Gospels that the Lord devoted time to pray and time to communion with his Father. And now he had that great confidence that the Father always heard him. What about David? David was a man who was aware of God in all things. At least he was in his better times. He knew that the Lord had chosen him to be king over the people, to shepherd God's people, Israel. He acknowledged that God was the source of all his victories. He's the one who gave him victory over the lion and over the bear. He's the one who gave him victory over Goliath. True. But then you read that account in 2 Samuel 11 of David and Bathsheba, and you see the way that that man of God fell. Why did he fall? Because he failed to set the Lord before his eyes. We read, don't we? It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants and all Israel. They destroyed the people of Ammon, but David remained at Jerusalem. That's strange. I thought it was the time that kings went out to battle. Why isn't David going to battle? Because he's no longer regarding God and his will. He's become cold, and he's thinking about himself. And from his roof, he sees a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful to behold. So he sends for her, and she comes, and he sleeps with her, and the rest is history. Why? He doesn't set the Lord before his eyes. Now, for us as believers, this has got an implication, hasn't it? Our spiritual health and our spiritual stability depends on our continual awareness of God. God is holy. God is good. He's redeemed us so that we can know him and so that we can serve him. We know that his eye is constantly upon us. But it's only as we remember God that we retain that stability. In all the practicalities of life, however small, nothing happens to us which is outside of the will of God. Do we remember that? 
And in every circumstance we say, I don't just see these problems, I don't just see the things I don't understand, but I can see that God is in it and over above it. Even if I don't understand how, I know that he knows. And because it comes from his hand, I can trust him. A new perspective. God is in the small details of my life. God is in the big details of my life. Because I know that, I can be at peace. The glory of God is to be our one great aim, isn't it? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God. How you ought to walk and please God. I've set the Lord continually before my eyes. His glory in pleasing him marks the direction of my life. That's where I find my stability. I live to serve him who loves me. His word is to be the rule of our lives. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I set the Lord continually before my eyes. Where he leads, I will follow. And our fellowship with God. It's nurtured in prayer and it's nurtured in worship. We always, as Christian people, have to get beyond the word, if you know what I mean. We thank God for the truth, but the truth points us to himself. We don't worship the truth, we worship him. We don't trust the truth, we trust him. It's vitally important. We set the Lord before our eyes, and it colors everything. There are situations sometimes in the Christian life where we look away from the Lord and we put other things before our eyes. But when that happens, that's just a path to disobedience. And if God doesn't intervene, that's the path, as David found, to disaster. So there's the first big thing from this verse. A God-aware life. A new perspective and a new commitment. I've set the Lord always before my eyes. The second thing, it's a God-empowered life. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. Not only are we aware of God and we are intent on his glory, but we remember that the Lord is at our right hand to help us. How can we live for God's glory? How can we press forward? How can our lives be different? How can we serve him and please him? How can we overcome temptation? How can we deal with trouble? God is at my right hand. And if God is at my right hand, it means we have a new power and a new enabling. This was true of Christ. He performed his miracles and carried out his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit that was given to him by his father at his baptism. You remember that? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me too. Preach the gospel, perform his miracles, etc. He carried out his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was by the Spirit that he offered himself to God. It was by the Spirit that he was declared to be the Son of God with power in his resurrection from the dead. The Lord was with him. What about David? The Lord was at his right hand. It was the Lord who gave him victory over the lion and the bear, over Goliath. He says, doesn't he, when he speaks to Saul about Goliath, and then when he goes on to speak to Goliath himself, this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, 
for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. His confidence is in God. He's at his right hand. It was the Lord who supported David in time of trouble. You remember when um, David and his men go off and when they come back to the city, uh, the city has been uh, attacked and all the people and all the goods have been carried away. And David was greatly distressed, we read in 1 Samuel 30, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. There are times in life when everything may desert us. And all the props and all the supports that we have had seem to fail. In that situation, what do we do? God is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. If God has promised to undertake on our behalf, we can have great confidence in him as believers our confidence comes from knowing that the lord is at our right hand what are god's purposes in our lives and men you could read the promises of god and as you read the promises of god you get an insight into what god intends to do for his people that's why the promises are given they give us a, 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 a snapshot of god's will for us how do those promises work themselves out in our lives? Well, we have to believe the promise of God. Of course we do. We have to trust the Lord. But what we are saying is this. I trust God to undertake for me. I trust God to exert his power in my life so that his promises might come true. I trust God to enable me to overcome. I trust God to help me in the face of temptation. I trust God to comfort me when I've nowhere else to turn. I trust God to enable me to stand. It's because God is at our right hand that all these things come to pass. So Paul can say, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He does it by his almighty power. What this means is that all of the resources of the triune God are at work in the lives of believers so that God might keep his promises to us and so that we might be faithful to him in the world, so that we might be changed and transformed. His power is at work. God is the God who made the world, and in the Bible, making the world is described as the work of God's fingers. But salvation is described as the work of God's right hand. It's interesting that, isn't it? It's harder for God to save a soul than it is to make a world. And the reason is, he made a world out of nothing. But to save a soul, he had to take a negative and make it a positive. He had to take a sinner and remove their sin so that he might make them a saint. It's harder to overcome sin and the devil than it is to create out of nothing. It's the work of God's right hand, but he accomplishes it because he's God. Did you know that that same power is at work in our lives so that we might be faithful to him? God's understanding. He knows the end from the beginning. He understands all the hidden motives of the people around us and all the intricate details 
that are going on, he's never confused, he's never overwhelmed. His wisdom. God is a God who made the wings of the butterflies. And God is a God who made the galaxies of stars. There are complexities to these things that we as men and women haven't begun to understand. But God knows. God is a God who in his wisdom brought Christ into the world in the fullness of time. He's a God who's never outfoxed and who makes no mistakes. And that's true in our lives as well. He's never outfoxed. He never makes mistakes. He's at our right hand and he'll help us. His mercy. Mercy overcomes all our failures. Where would we be without the mercy of God? But isn't the wonderful thing that the mercy of God never fails? You know, in Lamentations 3, it's through the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When you stand in need of mercy, where do you turn? We turn to God whose mercy never fails. Grace. The grace of God supplies all that we stand in need of. And the Lord says to us, as he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. The love of God. The love of God is at work in our lives. The love of God is on our side. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Now, as Christians, we experienced this when we were saved. But how many times since that have we experienced it again? That the Lord in his mercy has come into that broken situation. Come into that situation of strain and stress. Come into that situation of failure and disobedience, of doubt and of darkness. And again in his mercy has spoken to us, has reminded us of his promises and of his goodness, has pointed us to the Lord Jesus Christ and has drawn us back with the cords of love. He is at my right hand. And if God is for us, who can be against us? The third thing. A God-confident life. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. See, what we get from this verse of the psalm is, we have to view our lives in a proper relation to God. I've set the Lord always before me. A new perspective, a new commitment. It's vital. We have to remember that the Lord is with us and he's with us to help us. He's at my right hand, a new power, a new enabling. But because of that, we have to have a new confidence because we have a new security. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. What does it mean to be moved? Well, the idea behind the word here is to be shaken or to uh, be troubled or to stagger. A circumstance comes into your life and it really shakes you up and you're in danger of falling. Something comes into your life which really staggers you and you think, I cannot possibly get over that. Hold on. Remember God. Remember his power and his wisdom. Remember that he keeps his promises. You don't need to fall. One of the great lies of the devil when it comes to temptation is this. The devil comes to us and he says, we've been here before, haven't we? You know where this is going, don't you? It won't be long now, will it? 
You know that kind of pattern? He makes out to us that nothing has changed and that falling to his temptation is an inevitability. You know what is not true? We set the Lord before us. Things have changed because we've been saved. The Lord is at our right hands in his power and his faithfulness and his mercy. We don't need to fall. We don't need to stagger and to stumble. We don't need to be moved. We can stand and we can be faithful because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Thank God that by the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts and the way the Lord keeps us through his word and helps us to trust him, the reality is that we do not need to stumble, but we can follow him. You see, what the Lord's promised, he'll perform. Daily needs. We're in a situation where we are struggling financially. Will the Lord let us down? Now, it's for the Lord to determine what portion is right for us. It's right that we trust God and we work hard and we be faithful. Of course it is. We shouldn't be lazy. But at the end of the day, we have God's promise. Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Why? Because the Lord's at our right hand. We don't need to be moved. We're in a difficult situation. We don't know what to do. It's hard to decide on the right course of action. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. What's he saying? Set the Lord before you continually. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. He'll direct your paths. The Lord is at your right hand. You don't need to stagger and fall. Strength. Your sandals shall be iron and bronze, it says in Deuteronomy 33. As your days are, so shall your strength be. That's a great promise. We get older as believers and we feel we can no longer do the things we used to do. That's true. But for the days the Lord gives us, he gives us sufficient strength to be faithful to him. We might not be able to serve him the way we served him before, but he helps us to serve him in the way he would have us serve him now. And that's a tremendous promise. When he puts me in this situation, in this situation, he will sustain me because he's at my right hand and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Protection and perseverance. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. We read in 2 Thessalonians 3. What's better known is this. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Many things would come into our lives and seek to destroy our Christian profession. Temptation, trouble, criticism, the devil. None of those things can ever break our relationship with God. None of them can ever take away from us the salvation of Christ. Why is that? Because God himself holds us in his hand. And if God holds us in his hand, there is no power that is able to separate us from him. Nothing which can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. You see, the wonderful truth that there is a new power and a new enabling because God himself is at work in the life of the believer. How do you learn this stuff? Let me just give you four or five little things here, just for you to think about. We see the reality of the faithfulness of God in the plan of salvation. God purposed in eternity he would serve his people. And the whole history of the world has shown that God is keeping his promise. That he is building his church, that he is saving his loved ones, that he is keeping them and that he is taking them home. When we stand back and observe the faithfulness of God, we see this truth. We see it in his promises. How many of us have found a promise in the word of God that suits our circumstance and have prayed honestly before the Lord, Lord, this is what you've promised. Keep your word to me. And God has answered. And we look at that and we say, this is the faithfulness and the power of God. This poor man cried to the Lord and the Lord heard me and delivered me out of all my troubles. You see why? He's faithful to his promise. His power is at work in our lives. We can trust him. Third thing, our Ebenezer's. You know this idea in the Old Testament that they set up a stone at the side of the river and they called it Ebenezer. This far the Lord has helped me. It's very helpful in Christian fellowship that we talk to one another and we talk honestly about what the Lord has done for us. Come and hear what the Lord has done for my soul. We don't boast in ourselves, but we honour God when we're able to say to one another, I went through a time like that, brother. And in that situation, the Lord dealt with me and he humbled me and he kept me. And even though he refined me like fire, I came out like gold. The Lord is faithful. Even in the fire, he is at our right hand and we need not be moved. These are wonderful, important truths that it's vital for us in our Christian lives to learn. So just to finish, three things. This truth, I have set the Lord before me. He's at my right hand. I won't be moved. Three things. It's a test of where we stand before God. A test of our spiritual condition. Is God a living reality to us? Can we speak to him? Does he answer us? Is he faithful? Has he changed us in such a way that we desire his will to be done more than we desire our own comfort? Is our desire that we might be faithful to him and follow him? And when we trust him, does he help us? It's a wonderful truth. But if that isn't true, it means we've never been brought to know God. I don't mean that to sound harsh and to sound cold. I'm not saying that these things are true of Christians in their perfection, that every time they pray, wonderful things happen, that they never face any difficulties which trouble them and cause them anxiety. No, no, we struggle and we go through the fire and we go through the water, but the truth is, when we do that, we're not harmed because he's our God and he brings us out of the fire and he keeps us. 
If the Lord isn't in our lives, it means we don't know him and he doesn't know us. And the only answer to that is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ who brings us back to God. You see, he needs to save us and he needs to change us and he needs to stop us living for ourselves and change us into people who live for him. Lord, what will you have me to do to become disciples who follow the Lamb wherever he goes? A new heart, a new love, a new desire, a new knowledge, a new relationship that he might be our God and that we might be his people, that we might follow him and that he in his mercy might walk with us. Let me recommend to you Jesus Christ, the saviour of men and women, who can change us and who can bring us back to God. Here's the second one. Is this true of you? Do you find in life that you're constantly referring to God? You're constantly assessing the things you're doing in the light of God and in the light of his word. The question in your heart is, what would the Lord think of this? Is this pleasing to God? Are you praying, Lord, help me to do this. Help me to be faithful. Help me to follow you. That's wonderful. The Lord's before your eyes. You know he's at your right hand. Let me encourage you. You won't be moved. Carry on, brother, just as you have been. Carry on, sister. Trust the Lord. Depend on his promises. He's faithful. You won't be moved. Suck the sweetness out of this promise. I hold God before my eyes and I trust him to help me. He'll keep me through the fire and he'll keep me through the water and one day he'll take me home. Why? Because he's faithful and he's promised and he loves us and he cares. Third thing, maybe you're a believer but your awareness of God has waned. I know what you're saying, you think. I've had times like that in my Christian life, but recently things have grown a bit cold. Recently I've become less concerned about what the Lord thinks, and recently I've found that I've been less able to be faithful to God. I've started to become a bit more selfish, I've started to live a bit more for myself, I've started to dabble with things that I know aren't right, but you know, it doesn't trouble me so much. And I know I'm on a slide. The Christian is always at his weakest and always at his saddest when he loses his awareness of God. That's the reality. A backslidden Christian's not happy anyway. He's not happy in church because he feels uncomfortable and he's not happy in the world because he knows he shouldn't be there. It's a difficult and a dangerous position to be in. And my encouragement to you tonight would be to address this before the Lord. Lord, I failed to keep you constantly before my eyes. I've been too distracted by worldly things. Lord, I failed to remember that you promised to help me in every circumstance. I've turned away and I've let you down. Lord, I've started to slip and I've started to stagger and I know this isn't right but what a wonderful thing it is to know that God is a God who restores the backslider God is a God who binds up the broken hearted God is a God who meets with us in our weakness and in place of our weakness gives us strength 
God is a God who's faithful to his people. And when we return to him, he returns to us. If that's your situation tonight, let me encourage you to do this. Place the Lord Jesus Christ before your eyes. And this evening, as we pray, consider him who loved you and who gave himself for you. Remember his mercies to you in time past. And remember the fact that he's promised that he'll love you to the end. Do this. Remember that he's given you precious promises right at your right hand. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive you your sins and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll do it freely for Jesus Christ's sake. Because he's the saviour of sinners. And he's the one who restores us and cleanses us when we fall. Remember that. And remember that he is as good as his word. Remember that the Lord Jesus Christ will keep you. He will strengthen you. And he will help you. And as you walk with him, he will walk with you. Think about those things. And commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ again and pray, Father, in your mercy, help me. Help me to set you constantly before me. Help me to remember that at your, at my right hand. And Father, I pray, keep your promise to me in your word. As I trust you, don't let me fall. Don't let me grow cold. Don't let me turn away. Don't let me be moved and stumble and stagger and fall. Lord, wash me, cleanse me, change me, help me, keep me. Show to me how precious you are. Show me something of your love for me that my heart might be humbled and softened. Lord, help me to keep you constantly before me. And in your great mercy, walk with me at my right hand so that I might not be moved. Do you know why? The Lord Jesus Christ is worth it. His purpose in our salvation is that we might serve him in this world and bring glory to his name before he takes us home to heaven. By his grace, might he enable us to do that. The Lord Jesus Christ is the saviour of sinners and the greatest privilege we have is to know him and to serve him here. Let's pray. Father, tonight, we would ask in your mercy that you'd help us. You know us, each one in our lives, those of us who are walking closely with you praise you, that it's true that you are at our right hand and you keep us. Those of us, Father, who've been cold and who've drifted away, Lord, we pray, draw us back tonight. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Saviour of sinners, and we thank you for love and mercy, which is rich and free. Cleanse us, Father. Humble us. Help us. Restore us. And Father, those of us who've never come to know Christ for ourselves, those of us to whom you are still a distant God. Lord, have mercy on us and save us. For Jesus Christ's sake, wash us. Lord, forgive us our sins. Make us your children so that we might know you and so that we might serve you. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.